0: Good evening, good evening. So thankful that uh, you made it out, even in the, even in the rain. So, thankful. And um, my name's Chip Sweeney, one of the pastors here at Perimeter, as well as on the senior leadership team over a division called City and Campus Transformation, and community outreach is part of that. Um, it's hard to believe that 15 years ago, 2002 is when we launched um, a number of ministries. As we uh, we talk about, it as we added the hand to the head and heart. At that point, we really did not have any strategic focus or effort on um, how can we help our people get enge- get engaged in the community with um, the poor, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow. And uh, so I had the privilege of being part of that team that launched community outreach in 2002. And uh, our philosophy really from the beginning has been about partnership. Uh, And so primarily as many of you know, in fact, I know many of you are very involved in a lot that we're doing is uh, we identify key nonprofits and organizations that we feel like match up well with some of our vision and mission, and so we mobilize um, people that way. And over the years, I can tell you, uh, we have learned a lot, the hard way. <laughs> uh, we've learned a lot, and we've learned a lot from folks like the, the men that are with us um, tonight. I'm so thankful for both uh, Brian and Sean to be with us. And uh, I know Deborah was reminding me, I think it was about six years ago that we saw Brian came to a church, I think it was in Marietta maybe, Brian, and was, it, was, it was close to when, when Helping Hurts, um, the book came out and was going over the principles. So that was a tremendous learning for us as we continued on this journey of how do we do this well? How do we engage well and love well? Um, and then recently with Sean, it's been great to connect with him. and um, uh, they've developed an online platform called Seeking Shalom, which we love. A number of Deborah and I and a number of us have been through it, and we want to expose that more to our congregation. So um, well, let me introduce Brian Fickert is with us. He's the professor of economics and Community Development and the founder and president of the Chalmers Center for Economic Development at Covenant College. Uh, which is a tremendous center. If you've not been to their website or been to any of their equipping, uh, it's tremendous. Thank it's you, been a right? gift to the body of Christ. Thank so, thank you so much. He's co-author of numbers of books. When Helping Hurts is one of those, by the way, and I believe we've got um, copies of those in, in the bookstore. Yep. Um, and as well as Helping Without Hurting, Short-Term Missions, Church Benevolence, <laughs> from dependence to dignity, but a lot of great resources. So really thankful, Brian. And Thank Dr. Sean Duncan's the director of the Lupton Center, which is the training and consulting division of FCS. A lot of you may be familiar with FCS and Bob Lupton, who is one of the really grandfathers, <laughs> uh, one of the warriors of just this movement of being able to love well. And Sean is, uh, has got backgrounds in ministry and coaching, nonprofits, leadership, curriculum, as I mentioned. I think all of you probably know Deborah, but she is the director of our community outreach. She's really our expert. She's the one Mm -hmm. that is mobilizing us as a church into the community. Uh, She and her team, I should say. By the way, could we give a thanks to the community outreach and the whole team that (laughs) that put this on? Jackie back there and just a number of them. So very thankful. Um, so here's the format. I'm gonna go ahead and, and start us out and ask some questions, kind of get things rolling. And then uh, after a period of time, probably 45 minutes or more, we're gonna open it up for Q&A. And so as you can see, uh, there's a number you can text. If you have questions, uh, you can go ahead and, uh, and text those. Um, that'll be part, uh, we'll also have some mics. So we're not gonna be able to get to every question, but um, I do have this handy-dandy device up here. And so (laughs) if I can figure it out, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, We'll get some of those too. And then Deborah's gonna conclude our time. You know, I think one of our our primary goals is obviously we wanna learn from um, these guys who are experts, uh, but we wanna know, okay, what does it mean for us, right? What does it mean for us as a church? Um, but also, what does it mean for us individually and as families? And how do we practically, uh, it may be whether it's just getting started or whether it's moving from, um, to a deeper level of engagement. So very excited about that. So let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we do give thanks for tonight. We give thanks that you are um, a God who loves us uh, much more than we could ever imagine. Thank you that um, every person is made in your image, that everyone has dignity. No matter what our socioeconomic status is or what our race or ethnicity, um, but we are all extremely valuable and we give thanks. Thank you for your body. Thank you for the privilege to be your children. And thank you that you would use us in such a way that we can love others uh, for your glory and for your kingdom. So pray that you would meet us here tonight. Pray that you would guide and direct um, those who will be sharing and speaking. And Lord, my prayer is you would work in each of our hearts. Work in each of our hearts, Lord to make us more like you, and to be drawn into how we can uh, continue to be part of uh, just your glorious kingdom work, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, let's kind of start with the basics, (laughs) and that is, you know, I think for many of us, um, when we hear poverty, Mm -hmm. we immediately think of one thing, Mm -hmm. right, and that is really, material poverty, but um, help us understand better what, what really is poverty from your guys' standpoint. You want to d- dive in?
1: Sure. So <clears throat> maybe I could introduce this by way of example. L- let's imagine that um, you have a son and he is uh, highly successful in high school. Maybe he's a perfectionist. I might know some people who have those qualities. And he's a 4.0 student, and he's the captain of the soccer team, and he's highly successful. And he goes off to college, and suddenly some things start not going too well. Uh, for the first time, he's struggling academically. He's always gotten straight A's, and now he's struggling to get B's. And he can't cope with that. He's a perfectionist. He can't cope with that. He's getting B's, and he's discouraged by that. And, and he's used to being the, the star of the soccer team, and suddenly he's on the bench, because there's seniors who are better than he is. And so he's struggling with the fact that he's, he's not first, he's not starting. And he starts to, to really struggle with that and, pr- and pretty soon he starts uh, messing around with alcohol and he's drinking a little bit and pretty soon he gets kicked out of college and he becomes homeless. And you start calling his dorm room at school, and he's not there anymore, and, and he's not returning your phone calls, and, and you, so you drive to, to, the, to the school, and they say, we don't know where he is, we, we've lost track of him, he wasn't doing so well, we've lost track of him, and pretty soon you find out that he's homeless and living on the street corner, it's freezing cold out. Now, now, how would you respond to that situation? What would, what, what would you do to help your son out? There's a sense in which he's materially poor. He's homeless at that moment. He, he's living on the street corner, and he didn't have a house. And what if you responded by giving him a bag of groceries and then driving back home again? Hmm. And, and then a week later, he was still, out, he was still homeless, and, and then you gave him another bag of groceries, and then you drove home again, and a week later, he's still homeless. And then you get disgusted and go, what's wrong with him? You, you know, he has all these gifts, all these abilities, and we're helping him out by giving him these bags of groceries, and he's not, he's not responding, and then you wash your hands of him and say he's good for nothing, he's lazy. That's not what you would do, is it? What would you do? You'd go and you'd hug him, and you'd say, you'd say son, what's going on here? And he'd go, you know, you know, I'm not doing well in school, and you'd be going, yeah, but it's okay. It's okay that you're not the best anymore. And you kind of walk him through that. And what you would do is you'd kind of see his, his lack of housing as a symptom of something deeper, wouldn't you? You'd kind of say to yourself, you know, he's always been a perfectionist. He doesn't know how to cope with imperfection. You kind of start to deal with that understanding of who he is as an image bearer. You start to kind of deal with his his self-identity. You start to deal with uh, the fact that God loves him. You try to communicate that, and you deal with him relationally. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we're trying to say to you about the poor. Most poverty, most material poverty, a lack of food, a lack of clothing, a lack of housing is a symptom of something deeper. And what we need to do is to deal with people the way that you deal with your son. If he couldn't cope with college the first time he went there. There's a relational issue you've got to deal with. And when you address the relational issue, the material issue is going to go away. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. The problem is when we deal with materially poor people, we tend to deal with them as though their symptom is actually the underlying disease, and it's not. Mm-hmm. And so the ways that we try to help the poor actually typically
2: don't help and often hurt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, the question of definitions about poverty, as you mentioned, is like, this is kind of a simple entryway kind of question. Uh, I think it's huge that we deal with that question, although it's not at all simple. Right? So what is poverty sounds like your, your 101 question. Uh, and whether you're talking about material poverty, current day, our own city that we're living in now, uh, or throughout Scripture, there really isn't a definition. Right Now it's clear from cover to cover, the Bible is deeply concerned about material poverty. Not just spiritual, but material, front to back. Um, but it doesn't define it. Right, doesn't define what it is. Doesn't give because, and this is probably the best, um, probably not a definition but a description of poverty that recently uh, I've come across is that poverty is a cluster of disadvantages, um, and to me that just is so deeply true uh, because there there can be the same symptom, as Brian's saying, in multiple people, uh, that's because of radically different things. Uh, but even that single symptom is not the result of a single root issue. It is always a cluster. right? There, there's, now, if it's a crisis, we talk about crisis and chronic. If it's crisis, maybe there's tornado, house was knocked down. Okay, it's pretty simple. We need to restore housing. Uh, but most of the poverty that we're ever going to deal with is going to be chronic. Um, and if we're going to engage that well, definitions matter, because how we define it is going to determine how we respond. Uh, And if we're defining poverty according to a a simple framework, then we're going to respond to poverty with this simple framework and then be frustrated that it's not producing real lasting results. And so um, I think what we're trying to figure out is how do you engage at a multidimensional level because poverty will blow up your definitions, right? If you get into those relationships, uh, it's pretty rare that there's a single storyline or a single uh, pin that got removed, that there are so many different things And when you begin to walk relation with those in chronic poverty, uh, there is a cluster of disadvantages that have created and are going to continue to perpetuate that. So we have to be willing to engage it, at multiple levels.
0: So let, let's engage that a little bit. I like that cluster of disadvantages and um, you both started getting into this, but help us better understand um, you know, what helps versus what hurts, you know, what, what are, uh, because poverty is much more, much broader than, right, just seeing that they don't have things or they're homeless or, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: so maybe begin to dive in a little bit just to the, Mm -hmm. what's healthy, what's not, um, Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, just to kind of follow that a little bit, that uh, there's kind of two very broad buckets or categories that, that, that we'll talk about uh, when, when uh, our best efforts to help are harming or uh, toxic in some way. Um, and one of those is just that it's a, a sheer diagnostic error that we have failed to define accurately what we're dealing with, right? So, as it generally goes, we observe that, that symptomatic lack, material lack. Uh, we're stirred up deeply inside and we need to respond and we need to respond quickly because we want to alleviate that intense discomfort in our in our spirits, right? Uh, and that's part of God in us, that, that God's own image is, is calling forth that deep sense of compassion. Um, but we tend to kind of just react at what we can see and only live there. Um, We have failed to understand what is, uh, according to the story here, what is going on that led to the situation that we're in. Uh, And so part of whatever uh, part of the world or whatever issue it is that that we might be engaging, uh, one of the ways that we end up either simply just not helping or not making a difference or potentially causing harm is that we fail to diagnose uh, accurately. Uh, In very generic terms, we talk about crisis versus chronic poverty. Uh, like I said, most of what we're going to deal with is in the, in the um, chronic category. Uh, but if you just surveyed kind of the, the city of metro Atlanta, uh, the vast majority of resources are delivered as if it were a crisis, uh, but the vast majority of need is chronic. Uh, and so we kind of fail to distinguish what is, is going on, Then we'll, then we're going to have harmful... Uh, actions, motivated by, by deep and right motives. Uh, and the second kind of broad category that, that we will use to talk about where we might be going wrong is uh, what, what we call a proximity disorder, which is the relational piece here. Uh, that there is such a geographic distance and a relational distance between the people doing the serving and the people who are intended to benefit from that serving, uh, that it's hard to diagnose accurately. Uh, that the, the, the distance between those that have and those that do not have uh, is so great that it's hard to get a clear image of what, what really is going on. And I think that's, that's a piece, when, as we're training and working and teaching, we always lead with that particular... Uh, that relational piece has got to be dealt with before we can get at any of the other critical components. You know, Sean has mentioned the importance of diagnosing
1: the problem correctly and that's 1,000% right. Um, I, would, I would also say, in addition to diagnosing the problem, we also have to have a clear sense of what the goal is. Mm-hmm. What does what uh, shalom mm-hmm. for the city <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> actually Good, look Good. like? I'm so nervous. I'm going to say it wrong. You
3: think you're nervous. Yeah, you yeah, think. <laughs>
1: We have to actually know what the goal is. Mm-hmm. And I would submit to you that the problem, the biggest problem for most of us in this room today is that we don't actually understand what human flourishing is for the materially poor or for ourselves. Right on. And see, the implicit assumption in most poverty alleviation work is that the goal is to make the poor like us. The goal is to turn inner city Atlanta into wherever we are right now. Uh, The goal is to turn Uganda into the United States because we have a sense that we've kind of arrived, that we are flourishing. And and I would submit to you that 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 notion is at the heart of what's wrong in our poverty alleviation efforts. You see, most of Western civilization has to find the human being as a fundamentally material creature.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We, we, we think of human beings as fundamentally material and hence flourishing is to have more stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is kind of like the American dream kind of idea, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so, so the, the flourishing is to have more stuff and there's kind of two ways that you can help poor people to have more stuff. Mm-hmm. One way is to give them things and, and I think a lot of people in this audience I am suspecting there's one or two Republicans here, I'm just looking around the room, and just guessing that there's one or two Republicans here going, you know what, that creates dependencies. Let's help the poor to work. That's a better way to do it. And and, and I would agree with that, but if the end game of the work is to pursue the American dream, there's something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Because it's not working for you and me either. I want to show you something. We've got some slides, if, if we could pay attention. Dave, are you ready? David's back there worrying about the show for the city. This, this is... Um, this, this, he's editing that out as fast as he can. Uh, um, the, the, the horizontal axis is time. All right. So uh, it, it goes from 1972 to 2008, but actually we could take this all the way back to 1930, the same story. And so the, uh, the red line is actually self-reported happiness. So they ask Americans, how happy are you on a scale of one to 10? People just give a number, all right? On a scale of one to 10, I'm like a three or something, all right, if you're Dutch, you're a one because you're grumpy, I'm Dutch. So, <laughs> so the, the, the blue line is actually uh, uh, income per, real income per person. And what you'll notice going on here is that real income in America has steadily increased. It actually, you can go all the way back to the 1930s. Real income in America steadily increased, but what do you notice about the self-reported happiness of the average American? It's flat, and you actually see it starting to go down, don't you? And then if we look at the more recent years, uh, more recent slide, uh, we actually see from 2006 to 2016, real happiness, or self-reported happiness of Americans is declining, we're not a happy people. Mm. Our families are fragmenting, our communities are falling apart, we've got more and more stuff, Mm. but we're less and less happy. Mm. Now that's kind of a subjective measure, right? But there's a more objective one we can look at, uh, mental illness. This is mental illness amongst college students from 1930 to the present. And you'll notice that the mental illness, particularly anxiety and depression amongst college-age students in America, over the same time period that our incomes and wealth are expanding uh, to unprecedented levels, uh, mental illness is skyrocketing in America. And there's been research done on that. You know what they're finding? That the human being is wired for relationship. God is inherently a relational being. Theologians point to four key relationships, a relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the rest of creation to work and to glorify God through our work. What what scientists are finding is that human beings are wired for relationship and that there's a huge breakdown in relationships for Americans, particularly America's youth. And they're discovering there's a breakdown in two primary relationships for America's young people. These are secular scientists now a relationship with others, particularly older adults, and secondly, a relationship with a higher power, what some would call God. And they're arguing that it's a breakdown in relationships with others and with God that's leading to explosions in mental illness. They're also finding the reason these relationships are breaking down is because we become materialistic people. We're all pursuing the American dream so quickly. We're all trying to accumulate higher and higher degrees of income and wealth. We don't have time for relationships. There's nobody at the dinner table anymore. And American society is breaking down now. To say to the poor, come be just like us? Mm-hmm. We're not the answer here. Mm-hmm. And so that, that same material approach we take to serving the poor, we're taking that to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. <sighs> so that your original question was, how do we know when we're helping without hurting? Guys, we don't even know the answer for ourselves yet. I'm full of optimism and hope.
0: <laughs> Lots of shalom over here, buddy.
5: <clears throat>
0: let's, dig into, let's dig into shalom and flourishing some more. What it, so what does that look like? You're, you're hitting on some, Brian, with the relationship piece, but you too, Sean. What, mm-hmm. So what does that look like? Again, both for us and for right, those that maybe appear to be
2: more in need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of uh, ways about thinking about that uh, for us organizationally. So uh, FCS is located in the neighborhood of historic South Atlanta, which is not the part of Atlanta below 20. It's an actual uh, neighborhood that's just south of the old Brave Stadium. I'm still a little wounded that they're not there anymore, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, but there's a neighborhood there uh, called historic South Atlanta, uh, and as our goal is to empower neighborhoods to thrive. Flourishing in Shalom is in our language of mission and vision for the neighborhoods that we partner with. Uh, which comes the question, well, how do you define that? Um, so we, act, we do, so there are 12 indicators in three separate categories where we are tracking and measuring and interviewing and listening and following and it's everything from household income, uh, which as much as we would say, yes, that it's not about material things, we would all say, yes, it's also about material things. Uh, even in Scripture, as God is calling forth justice and harmony and righteousness and shalom, it is bound up materially in some way, right? Uh, and so we look at things like that, but we also look at things like a sense of place. Do you have a sense of identity about where you are? Because biblically, uh, I believe that, that the context of neighborhood is much where the idea of flourishing happens, right? Uh, it is not just about the individual and their relationship to God, which is valuable. Um, It is not just the individual and their relationship to their church, which is also valuable. Uh, But for the most part, uh, I think you could also track with with a graph like that, the displaced nature of American life, Uh, the sense of neighborhood and place. It's so much of like, uh, it's the the water the fish in scripture are all swimming in, is this deep, sense of what it means to be in place. The core context of thriving in the Old Testament is land. And that's not just about a material possession of land, it's about place and belonging and people and neighborhoods and connectivity. Uh, so I think at least part of our definition as we're constructing what it means for people to flourish has to do with place uh, and us living together and thriving together. And that yes, there are enough material things that people are not suffering and hurting. And in that post-traumatic stress of daily survival, Right. Uh, But it has much more to do with uh, living deeply at that neighborhood place based level. uh, That's really pretty fascinating um, and that in that that secular researchers are seeing that we are more segregated than we've ever been. Not just by race, but even more by economics, uh, that poverty continues to thrive because we segment it and we isolate it and we segment and we isolate wealth as well. We're not living across the street from each other anymore. Right. Um, and that's not just because the materially poor need a middle class person to look at and see what a work ethic is, not what I'm saying, right? It's because we need to see one another and learn from one another. Because the values that have shaped uh, an affluent culture in this, this country are not gospel values, right? Uh, but I have seen in my neighbors who are materially poor uh, some gospel values that I've long since forgotten, uh, and they, people question the family values of the poor. I've learned family values from people who are poor because there's a network of care and support uh, is, that is just beyond what I know, right? My family does those people that I, oh, is this being recorded? that I have to see on certain holidays, you know, uh, every year. And then I'm like, whew, I'm glad that's twice a year. You know, that, but there, there's a sense of like they, they depend deeply on each other in a way that I've never really known with my family, you know. Um, and so I just think it, it has to do with this kind of deep neighborhood place-based level that's that we uh, are our own salvation, our own uh, sanctification is at play when we are not in mutual relationships with those who are experiencing poverty. Excellent. You know, it says in the book of Leviticus <clears throat> that the
1: poor should be able to live beside us in the land. That, that's a, quite a command. Hmm. The poor should be able to live beside us in the land. Now think of housing patterns. Hmm. Think of transportation patterns. The the Chalmers Center tries to equip churches to help people who are poor. One of the ministries we use is something called Faith and Finances. And so it's kind of financial education and literacy for very poor people. We've done some research, We've, we've, we've asked churches that we've trained whether they've implemented this ministry or not. And the primary determining factor as to whether or not the churches have implemented the ministry or not is this does the church actually have existing relationships with poor people or not? You see, you see folks, for, for most of us, we're not living beside the poor in the land. Mm-hmm. Where we've chosen to live, the patterns of our lives pull us away from living beside the poor in the land. Because you don't have to get up every morning and hate poor people for this to happen. Just live the normal mainstream American life. And it will suck you away from the materially poor. When my oldest daughter was four years old, one of my colleagues said to me, hey, there's a soccer league, why don't you get your daughter playing in the soccer league? Sound like a good thing. I, I gotta tell you guys, it wasn't 40 days of prayer and fasting that went into this, it's like, what the heck? Sign Anna up to, uh, Jessica up to play soccer. That one decision made on a whim determined the course of our family's life for the next 20 years. Because you sign your daughter to play soccer, and the application form says, are you willing to help out? And I check, yes. Don't ever check the yes box. Because you'll become the head coach of a sport you've never even seen for the next 20 years of your life.
2: You would make a great goalkeeper, by the uh, way. Yeah, i played soccer exactly. my whole you life. Know, we so, always wanted guys you. like so you. So coaching
1: was, kick it to that net, guard this one. That's all I knew. For 20 years, my kid, soccer and basketball, and with a certain demographic, with a certain population. Now, it wasn't because I didn't like in, uh, uh, poor people, I just wasn't thinking. And because I checked that box, it sucked me into a system that pulled me and my family away from the poor on a daily basis. Guys, you know what it's like? You have your kids in a private school. that are involved in any extracurricular activities at all. My kids in a Christian school. They're involved in extracurricular activities. The second you do that, it's all over. There's no time for anything else in life. You work. You go to basketball games. That's it. And soccer game. That's it. There's nothing left. It's so the degree of intentionality that it's going to take for us to live beside the poor in the land is off the charts. There was I'm a, full of good news. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there was a, an author that was doing some, uh, just some research on kind of American churches and their connection to understanding of poverty and uh, it was pretty overwhelming response of churches that said, yes, caring for the poor is key to scripture and, and God's, God's concern. And the next question is, do you know anyone who's actually experiencing poverty and the percentages are in the single digits at that point? Uh, and so their, their conclusion is that the great tragedy is not that the church um, doesn't care about those experiencing poverty or isn't generous towards those experiencing poverty, but the great tragedy is that the church doesn't know those experiencing poverty, uh, which kind of led to this like thought experiment, which I'd invite you to give, a, give it a go. Uh, if you were to walk out of your front door, how far would you have to walk to come to a front door of someone who's experiencing <laughs> Poverty, material poverty. Uh, To take that a little bit further, if you were to leave your front door and start walking, how far would you have to walk to reach the door of someone who's experiencing poverty that's a door you wouldn't have to knock on because you know you're already invited in Mm -hmm. because you've been there so many times. Mm -hmm. Um, My guess is, not a lot of us um, (laughs) could, could ask Siri how far that distance is and she would be calculating, calculating, uh, but I think that's yeah. That there's and it's not a it's not a choice right? most of us didn't wake up and say I want to live completely isolated away from anyone experiencing these realities. Uh, but it re- requires if we don't make a choice, that's where we'll be, right? We have to make deliberate choices to be somewhere else. Where we shop, where we eat, which league of sports we play in, which schools we send our kids to, which neighborhoods we live in. These require very deliberate choices. Uh, that we make. Uh, and that's going to put us in proximity, which can open up a whole different world of what, what we're even talking about when we talk about charity and ministry, benevolence and poverty. The, the, the whole framework of what those mean to us will, will change because it will then become neighboring, right? It won't become uh, ministry. You know, like that, that was the greatest shift that ever happened in my mind where I struggled so mightily in relationships with people that were different from me and from a different world from me. And it took years before I was like, I'm finally figuring out the barrier of why I can't connect well is because I'm still assuming this is about ministry. This is just about not just loving my neighbor, but being loved by my neighbor. That at some point I had to let go that they needed me to be Jesus in every scenario. That at some level they were pretty resilient, incredible people that had something to speak into my own life. And that finally allowed some walls to break and for me and my wife to have to break and to see what we had, the assumptions we had carried about ministry and benevolence and poverty, um, proximity, doesn't let those, those, those frameworks last very long.
1: That's it. The shift from, look well, ministry is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But the shift from ministering, from starting a ministry to being a good neighbor is the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Some of you are going, I don't know how to do this. Well, I don't either. I stink at it. (laughs) But what what I'm discovering is if you're just a nice person
4: Mm.
1: and just be friendly, it's actually easier than you think.
4: Mm.
1: People are so lonely. Mm. Everybody's lonely. The rich in America are lonely. The middle class are lonely. The poor are lonely. People are alone. Mm. All you got to do is just smile a little bit and people respond. I live in a mixed income neighborhood, but it's gentrifying and so on. But guys, I live above place. I mean, I'm around all over the world, and, and so like I don't really know a lot of people in my neighborhood. And I've been there for 20 years. I'm a bit of an introvert. So when I go for walks in the evening, I put my headphones in, and my body language communicates don't get near me. I don't wanna to talk to you, I don't wanna know you, this is my quiet time, leave me alone or your life might be in danger. Well, I started to feel convicted about that and thought what if I just tried to be a neighbor? What if I stopped living above place and was just like friendly? Hmm. It turns out people respond just to being friendly really easily, it's not that hard. Uh, About four months ago, I was walking and there's a gentleman in my neighborhood who I've known a little bit and he stops me and he says, Brian, I don't know how to tell you this but I'm homeless. Could you help me? Well I could think of 10,000 reasons not to. I'm writing a book about how to help poor people, it's not my calling. It's somebody else's calling to did do you that. just give him
2: a copy of your book? Me, that co- my you, book? Did,
1: you, did you sign it? I, I'd sign it. And give it to, you read this. Well, it turns out he'd actually read my book. I mean, seriously, he'd read my book. He goes, Brian, I'm a chapter four kind of guy. So, so I called my wife, and I said, Jill, can I bring him home? I thought, dear God, please have her say no. Mm. She says, I guess, sure. So I said, Bill, you want to come over? And he says, no. So, every day, for the next three or four days, I'd see him, I'd say, Bill, you want to come stay in our house for a while? He'd say, no. And the final one day, he said, yes. <laughs> Crud. So, guys, this was really hard. I'm not going to tell you it was easy. It was, it was easy to make a friend. It would be friendly. It's really easy. Having this guy stay in our house wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. It buried me for three weeks. It did. It buried me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what Sean was saying is really huge that the poor have things to teach us. So, uh, Bill was staying on our sofa, and uh, Jill, my wife, was um, off for the weekend uh, visiting her mother. And I said to Bill, Bill, would you clean my house? Because Jill is coming home, and I need my house clean. He loves to clean. He goes, Sure. So, Bill, all day, is cleaning my house. And I'm sitting my study writing this book about how to help poor people. <laughs> And and Bill, all day long, is muttering under his breath, all day muttering, and he's got some mental illness issues, and at the end of the day I said, Bill, who are you talking to all the time? I thought I was gonna say like a secret friend or something. He said, I've been talking to God all day long. I said, what? He goes, yeah, he said, our work is an act of worship to God. So all day long I'm been saying, dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to work, thank you for the opportunity to stay in this house, thank you, do you do that? I was in the other room having a nervous breakdown with a stupid book and he's out there worshiping God all day cleaning my house. The next day I came down for breakfast and there was on the kitchen table a a long note from Bill. Dear Brian, Jill is coming home. Don't you think you ought to get her some flowers and put them right here? There's a big arrow telling me where to put them. Well, the truth of the matter is it never occurred to me to get my wife flowers. Is Bill teaching me relational things? Mm -hmm. He is. He's become a dear friend. He texts me every day. He texts me all day long. It's wild. Mm -hmm. But Bill is ministering to me. I have a friend who lives in my community. Guys, you can all do this. Just go be a friend. Mm -hmm. Just be
0: friendly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I hear you saying is, you know, we sometimes go into this thinking about how they need so much what we have and really, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. We need them as much. Both end. Um, so, Deborah, I want to get bring some hope to our <laughs> to our situation scenario here. But I, I did want to say because I know Brian, you were asking us before we got started about um, you know Atlanta has changed drastically mm-hmm. over these last twenty or twenty five years. I mean, there was a day back pre Olympics and uh, before that where the concentration of poverty, right, was in the inner city, Mm -hmm. in urban. And uh, that is, you know, there's all kinds of studies now, the suburbanization of -hmm. of poverty. And so even out where we are here in this area, um, you know, I think Jeff, uh, maybe it was Jeff Norris was sharing with us when he was preaching last week, just even when you look within a six mile radius right of here, that you've got, you know, up to 25 percent are quote struggling, right, in poverty or struggling. Um, and so, while our neighborhoods, you're right, are sometimes very much differentiated socioeconomically, we don't have to go very far mm-hmm. anymore. And Deborah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, even, and maybe some of your own um, story.
5: Hmm. Um, yeah. So, like they were saying, there's I feel like being close um, and neighboring helps you bridge those relationships. Many of you know around here that we talk all the time about um, serving geographically and we've been kind of moving out and building relationships in the communities around us with nonprofits and schools um, in in the effort to build those relationships. Um, and we can do that in a number of ways by serving through nonprofits and building relationships with the clients that they serve. Um, But many of you in the town hall meetings probably heard me share my story. Um, I was serving through Perimeter Church in the nonprofits in Norcross when I live in Sugar Hill. And I think the, the joy that I've experienced, and like we said before, we're all on this learning journey together. I think what I've experienced in the last probably three years in serving in my city in the schools in my city with my neighbors becoming my friends um, has allowed me to build those relationships that have opened doors. And my coworkers know this. Recently, there's a woman that I've built a relationship with through working, volunteering at the school on the PTA and her, and her husband took his life a couple weeks ago. Um, but it allowed me to move closer into her space where she was always like this oh, you're that church person. (laughs) Stay away from me. It's okay that we're on the PTA and and we live in the community together. But it allowed me to serve her in such a way that she allowed me to come over to her house and be with her in that time of need and pray with her. Um, And I wouldn't have gotten that chance, maybe, if it was over here in Norcross. Um, But because she lives in my community, she is my neighbor, she is uh, a friend, it has allowed me to... Relationally serve her in a huge way, um, and I didn't know that she was materially poor. Mm-hmm. I just assumed since we served on the PT and we did all these things together, I, I don't go. By the way, are you poor? Because mm-hmm. I'd love you better if you were poor. <laughs> 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 um, but but to my shock, she was. Mm. But I but it has allowed me to serve her in a huge way. I would say here at perimeter. You know we are oftentimes in a bubble being here. Um, We do live in communities that are geographically distant from people living in need. Um, But that's where our nonprofit friends really come into play. They are building those relationships. And yes, we ask all the time, I feel like, for you to give stuff. But our intent is to help you move through that relationship. Yes, it's to give the things that the people would say, oh, I need that. But it's it's that door of I'm going to give you a cup of cold water, but I want more. Mm-hmm. I want a friendship. I want to build a relationship. So and it is it teaches me stuff all the time. I know my team and our volunteers. We learn stuff all the time by serving through our nonprofits. It grows us. Mm-hmm. It it changes us, um, and that's what we want for you all mm-hmm. through the relationships mm-hmm. that we're building. Because we know mm-hmm. you, we know that some, you know. I'll just give another story. So I live in Sugar Hill, and I commute 45 minutes to this church every single day. It is a long commute. And I ask God all the time. I'm like, Lord, would you let me move to John's Creek? It would be so much easier. It would be faster. But like you said, it's a, cho- it's a, it's a decision. And God has said, no, I need you to plant your roots and go deep in Sugar Hill. I'm like, but it's such a long commute. And then I asked, Lord, can I please have my daughter who goes to sh- you know, school in Sugar Hill, can I bring her to Perimeter Christian School? it would be easy, I could see her at lunch, it, You know, all that would be easy for me. Mm. And, and God said, no, mm. it's the public school up in Sugar Hill, I want you to stay there and commune in every day because I, need, I have things for you to mm. do there. And he's planted us there. Mm. He's called us, he's called each of you like they were saying before, to where you live. You don't need to move, he's called you, and, but it's in those decisions. It's when we're making those decisions, why? Why are we making those decisions? And so when you, when you ask those things, he, you know, he's pretty clear on <laughs> all that. So mm-hmm. I would just say those are just a couple of my own learnings. But as I'm learning, I'm kind of trying to help shape it so that you can all hear and learn for yourself on your own journeys wherever you all live.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in Sugar Hill... These opportunities and relationships—it means schools. It can be in your shop where you shop, mm-hmm. the yep. grocery store where you go to. Yep.
5: I would say I'm a regular, so like I go to the same checkout lady every single time. I'm at Publix. I just saw one of my neighbors here. I go to the same lady every time because I'm building a relationship. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is I take time when I go to the store. Like mm-hmm. I try to. I had to go back and apologize one time because I don't go when I'm in a hurry because I really want to know my checkout lady, and talk to her, Her name's Helga. I wanna talk to her, I want her to pray with her. She's a friend of mine, she works long hours at Publix. But it's being a regular, it's going to the same places and and smiling and being kind and and being available Mm -hmm. for God to use you in the lives of other people around you. Mm
0: -hmm. So in many ways, right, this is not rocket science. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Um, But it's not easy either. Mm -hmm. Um, And and what, you guys have hit this some more, but what what are some of the barriers we've got to be able to work through, right, to become where we can be good neighbors, we can neighbor well, we can love well?
2: I think one of the the absolute hardest things uh, for me uh, was finally coming to terms with the, uh, that... That when I what I called serving was an expression of my power and my privilege. I'm more educated than you. I'm wealthier than you, right? I'm whiter than you. You know, uh, it was an expression that my life is good and strong and stable and fine, and I'm here to help. There's this weird reality that generosity can be an act of power and control. Uh, and so that ministry and outreach and service can be just as much about our brand building and an expression of our own goodness or power than it is about service. You think Philippians 2, Jesus casts off power and privilege and all those rights, and it's, it's a coming under. And so I think there's this paradox in this, that yes, it's easy, right? It's it's what we all it's, it's knowing people and being known by people I think but the the complexity the hard part of it all is the posture change that had to happen for people like me was that um, it was easy to get me excited about a book that told me to go and love the poor that fills all my messianic expectations for myself right uh, it's harder to say go and be loved by go and submit to someone in poverty, go and be led by, go and learn from. Uh, when it became that, so I remember praying deliberately for the house that we're still living in today. Like it was a decision of prayer because when I saw it, the like ugly house, I don't ever wanna live here, but, but that's where we landed and that's, that's where we, we discerned and it didn't take long the the prayer switched from, God, let us be your hands and feet and show us where to go and what to do. Before, I was like, as I'm pulling into my driveway, I'm like, God, please let my neighbors be inside and leave me alone, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, (laughs) because all of a sudden, it was like, it could no longer function on like, oh, Thursday afternoons from 6 to 7.30, I can go do this thing for for folks. But, you know, like in the rushed pace of our frantic lives, you know, I'm I'm driving in and out from meetings with church and all this other kind of stuff, and I'm flying into the driveway, and our neighbors are just kind of sitting on their porch. I mean, they've been to work all day, but work's over. They're just hanging out on the porch with each other as a family. Crazy idea, right? You know? And I'm pulling in, there waving, and I'm like, oh, they saw me. They saw me. I don't, have, I don't have a garage door. It's just like a three-sided. So I was like, oh, I wish I could just, you know, you know, they couldn't see me. But there's like this 50 feet between the thing, my car, and the back door where I feel like I'm exposed on the battlefield or something. Uh, and just having to submit to their invitations to hospitality, right? I love Luke chapter 10. Uh, that's where Jesus sends the disciples with no money. I'm like, now that's a commissioning the church needs to hear, right? we think we can't do a big mission without big, huge resources. And Jesus says, nope, go to these villages with nothing. And who, who's doing the ministry? It's, the, it's, it's not the disciples. They're knocking on the door with no money, no nothing. It's like, well, you can work in our fields and stay in our houses and eat our food, so all of a sudden they become the ones who are dispossessed and dependent upon the hospitality mm. of the other, and that's to me like the biggest barrier. Is not la- language is hard, culture is hard, all that stuff is yes, all that stuff is difficult. But the hardest thing for somebody like me was just this posture of needing to be in the lead and to be in control. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, there I'm. Uh, I've got to release this 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 power thing and come under, uh, which is a whole other kind of journey.
1: That's good. Yeah, Brian, just picking what, up, I agree with Sean. On. Just picking up on what Sean is saying, I really think it comes down to embracing the gospel. Uh, and, and, and guys, the good news of the gospel is that we stink. I'm full of more joy. <laughs> the, the good news of the gospel is that we stink, and that despite the fact that we stink, Jesus comes in, and he starts to give us a new aroma. We start to smell a little bit better. We spread the fragrance of Christ but we start to think that we conjured up that good smell on our own. And we really didn't. And so it's really about embracing the good news of the gospel that all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags mm-hmm. and having that posture. And guys, uh, the, the, the problem with American society is that a lot of the ways that we are dysfunctional in this room are society rewards. So... so uh, all through school, I was at the top of my class, every class I was ever in. So, so like when the teacher would assign you like you know um, extra reading that's on reserve in the library, and you guys didn't read it, I always read it. Every <laughs> single time. And, and you guys didn't, I resented you for not reading it, and I still kind of do actually. And so 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 so, so what was that all about? Well, if you'd asked me as a student, I would have said, I'm trying to develop my gifts to glorify God. And there's some truth in that, but there's also a perfectionism, a control, a fear of not knowing the answer on a test. And so the way that I did school was I memorized everything because I didn't want to get a test and not know the answer to something. Mm -hmm. It's a control issue. Can you see that? It's about not wanting to not be in control, and so my way of of dealing with it was to control all the variables by memorizing everything. When you get into adulthood, it doesn't work that well because there's too many variables, right? So what does that look like when you're a Caucasian male in American society and you're pretty smart and you work like a dog, you can get a PhD, and the whole world is telling you how great you are. It's, oh, look at him, look at him, look at him, look, it's great, it's great, it's great. But the dysfunctions that come from being wired like this are significant, Mm. but they're hidden. Mm. So it looks like this. My oldest daughter, when she was five years old, started acting really strange, and she's giving me permission to share this with you, by the way. She started acting acting really strange. We took her to the doctor and we said to the doctor, what's wrong with her? And the doctor examines her and he says, "Uh, she's got obsessive compulsive disorder. And I said, what's that? And he said, she's a control freak. I said, where'd she get that from? <laughs> and that was his reaction. Now, now if if you ask any teacher in school, they will tell you that Jessica is the best student they've ever had, national merit finalist. Every single thing she does in school is perfect. But what that looks like behind closed doors is sobbing that she might get one wrong on a test. It's enslavement. It means when she was 13 years old, I said, "Jessica, go clean your room," and she bursts out in tears and says, I, "I can't do it, Daddy." I said, "Why?" She said, "Daddy, when I take the rag and I wipe the bureau, more dust falls. I can't tell when I'm done." Mm. First year of college, she takes a course and uh, the assignment is write a history of the uh, write an economic, political, and uh, uh, economic, political, and social history of the country of your choice. She chooses Russia. Costa Rica was an option. <laughs> she chooses Russia. Do you know how complicated Russia is? So after four weeks of nervous breakdowns, weeping and gnashing of teeth, she shows me the paper and says, Daddy, what do you think? And I read it and I said, Jessica, it's master's degree work. You're a freshman in college. It's master's degree work, but you're gonna have a nervous breakdown if you continue this way. The way that society is set up rewards my dysfunctions. Mm -hmm. Are you tracking with me? The irony of it is my new homeless friend, Bill, has obsessive compulsive disorder too. But the way that it's worked out in his life has led him into hoarding and being evicted. You see, Bill and I have the same dysfunctions, it's just that the system's channeled his in a different way. Mm -hmm. We want to help him launch a cleaning business and he decided to call it OCD. (laughs) <laughs> Overcoming dirt was his tagline. <laughs> the systems support my dysfunctions. For other people, the systems crush and exacerbate their dysfunctions.
0: Mm-hmm. Bill sounds like he's really good for you. He's a piece <laughs> of work. <laughs>
3: um,
0: let me take in a slightly different direction in that I want to make sure... Um, we talk a little bit about work and vocation. Mm -hmm. And because I think sometimes it's easy to Mm disassociate that part of our life from what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about just the significance, right, of um, our work, our occupation, our, our relationships, our influence, and all of that. How, right, we can bless and share some of those things
2: yeah so this uh, especially for fcs and the work that we're doing with neighborhood development uh, in south atlanta this is essential to our ability to be successful at empowering a neighborhood to thrive um so i think in the christian world when we talk about kind of marrying our faith to our work we're, we tend to limit that to kind of our behaviors in the workplace are we ethical which is good right uh, are we excellent? Are we working hard and really showing what it's like to glorify God by, by working hard? Again, that's, that's fine and good. Uh, what we don't often talk about is how is the actual industry that we're in, how are we leveraging that industry for the flourishing of others, right? Because you could be an ethical, excellent employee inside of a business or an organization that is harming neighborhoods in your community and harming people though unintentionally, though you show up, you're the best employee possible, you, sh- you pray with your, 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 your co-workers, and you're just, you're on time, you work hard, you do all that you're expected to do, but the impact of, of the work itself, what is it doing to others, right? Uh, and so we recognize that in the neighborhood of South Atlanta, if we're going to uh, do, do long-term development in a chronically low-income neighborhood, we're not going to do it because a guy with a masters or doctorate in theology is compassionate, right? Compassion's not going to change the systems that have harmed that neighborhood, right? Now, it's necessary maybe to get us there, but you know the people who are the most important to us in, in actually leading to impact? Uh, it's women and men who are in real estate and development. They know how the market works, and they know how to make it work uh, in a neighborhood like South Atlanta, because we don't base... We require donations to do our work. We require grants and other sources of funding. But we want that neighborhood to be a sustainable neighborhood on its own well-being, right? And so we want strategies that actually work in the real world, right? Uh, We can't do that because we have a master's degree in Bible, right? Uh, But there are women and men who have been gifted by God to understand that world and to be brilliant at it. And they can execute strategies that make that work. And, neighbor, and that neighborhood is beginning to thrive. Been there since 2001, and the, the comparison to 2001 to now and what's happening at neighborhood, it's because people are leveraging their vocation for the sake of the kingdom in that place. When we came to understand that uh, our next one of our next ventures was gonna have to be a grocery store because South Atlanta's been a food desert for many years. Uh, We were thinking, well, we know compassionately that this needs to exist. We are in proximity, so we're hearing our neighbors say that this needs to exist. Uh, But we're looking around at our staff and saying, well, this guy bagged groceries when he was 15, which was like 25 years ago. That's as far as our expertise is going to take us into dealing with the food desert, right? So we try to recruit some of the big grocers to come no there's reasons they don't build stores in neighborhoods like ours now I bet they're ethical people that go to work every day but that system is not going to engage redemptively this neighborhood because it doesn't balance out right Um, but what we had to do is bring people to the table say you know this industry you know business you know how to make this work how do we do this in a sustainable way Uh, and that's the only reason we've been able to do it and so I think Thinking about our vocational expertise as a part of our calling. Too often in churches, that we get guilty when we talk about people's spiritual gifts. We only talk about what they can do to keep the congregation going internally. Now, that's a place for our spiritual gifts. There's no question there, but we don't talk enough about is how has God's spirit gifted you in your Monday through Friday or whatever days of the week that you work. What is that that the Spirit of God has laid in you with a unique ability to do, and how can you leverage that for the sake of the kingdom in your city?
1: It's a great answer. I have a question for all of you. I want you to really think about your answer to this question. Why did Jesus come to earth?
0: Mm.
1: What would you say for that? Really think, fix in your mind an answer to that question. Why did Jesus come to earth? most audiences like this one, if you ask them the question, why did Jesus come to earth? They will say something like this. Jesus came to earth to die to save me from my sins so that my soul can go to heaven someday when I die. That's a good answer. Some people will say something like this, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's a good answer to it. These are all from scripture, so you're all safe. Everybody's nervous.
2: (laughs) Need that right answer.
1: These are are all good answers. If you're a Presbyterian, you might say, Jesus came to die for the elect, you little snot nose. (laughs) Okay, now. Those are all true answers, but they're all subsets of a bigger answer. Because what Jesus says at the start of his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4 is that he's come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, that that is why he was sent The prophets foretold, Isaiah foretold that a king was coming that would bring justice and peace and righteousness and shalom as far as the curse is found, and it would be particularly good news for the poor. Jesus comes declaring his kingdom, his lordship over all of earth, that all power in heaven and earth has been granted unto him. He's king of kings and lord of lords of the Atlanta Braves. He's king of kings and lord of lords over Chick-fil-A, over the transportation system. He is king of kings and lord of lords over every square inch, that's his message. He declares that message and he shows that message amongst the poorest people on the planet. And here's what the American church has done to that message. We've reduced that message to Jesus is beaming my soul up to heaven when I die, and Monday through Saturday I'm gonna live the American dream. Guys, I'm a pastor's kid. That meant that every single time the church doors were open, I had to be there to set a good example for my peers. The entire salvation of a generation rested (laughs) on my going to church every single time the doors were open. Scars, deep wounds, therapy, 40 years of therapy. The lowest rung of Dante's Inferno as a pastor's kid was having to sing in the junior choir. (laughs) There is no lower bound. You stand there next to girls who have germs, and you're 12 years old, and you're wearing a robe that looks like a dress. The only thing that makes it worse is that your sister is the junior choir director, and she's picking on you. And There's one more little secret that makes it the worst. Deep down, you've been told. Or you've absorbed the idea that for all eternity, you're going to sing in the junior choir forever and ever and ever. You're going to be Casper the Friendly Ghost wearing a gown in the junior choir for all eternity. It's living hell. Now, I do not want to go to hell, but this only sounded marginally better. That's a picture of how many of us in the evangelical church in America conceived of the gospel. That the gospel is gonna, that somehow our souls are gonna get beamed up someday in some disembodied state. And so what are we doing right now? It's not the kingdom of God, it's the American dream Monday through Saturday while we wait to die. The message is the kingdom of God, every square inch is under his control. What that means is what Sean is saying. If you work in transportation, you have to seek justice and shalom in city transportation. If you work in the IT industry, you've gotta seek justice and shalom in the IT industry. His kingdom extends as far as the curse is found, and you as a follower of Jesus Christ are to engage in his mission following him into his mission, bringing justice and peace and righteousness and shalom wherever you are. And that means thinking creatively in whatever vocation you're in. It's not just about... Ministering through this church as much as you need to, and that's an important thing to do. It's out there as a judge, as a policeman, as a healthcare worker, whatever sphere of life you are called to to say, what does the kingdom of God look like over here? If Jesus is reigning over here, how do we bring his kingdom to bear in this sector? Every one of you can do this. And every one of you who's called to do it. Some of you are going, I don't even know where to begin. Then the neighboring issue and this systemic issue are connected. You see, guys, the systems work for you and me, so we're blind to how they're broken. They work for me. What you need to do is get a friend like Bill and try to walk through life with Bill, my homeless friend. You're, you're going to start to discover in that friendship, as he starts to try to engage with life, you're going to find out that he can't get a bus ride because there is no bus. Mm-hmm. There's no bus in my neighborhood either. You're going to go, holy cow, part of Bill's problem is a, bus, is a transportation issue. Then you're going to find that when Bill tries to go and access the social services in the city, that he can't understand them. That when you go with him, you're going to find you can't understand them either. Guys, I have a PhD. I cannot figure out how the housing system in Chattanooga works. I've gone with them. I cannot follow it. And what you're going to discover is what the broken systems are through your neighbor that you're becoming a friend with. And as you discover them, you can start to ask, how can I in my vocation make a difference? What friend do I know in City Hall? What friend do I know in real estate? What friend do I know in banking? What phone calls can I make to bend the systems towards the poor? Sorry, I'm preaching.
0: <laughs> do it. <laughs>
1: but you, it's the kingdom. It's the message of the kingdom. That's Jesus' message.
0: That's so good, and I, I think the combination of that with what we were on earlier of neighboring mm-hmm. relationship building, and I know even at Perimeter, more and more, uh, Deborah, maybe you could hit on this, or so I know you will at the end, but we're really trying to help our people think about, more about where we live, loving where we live. And that is where God has placed us, whether that's Sugar Hill or Duluth or Johns Creek or wherever that may be. But how do we come alongside others to seek the shalom, seek the flourishing together? Anything, Deborah, you wanna add? Well,
5: as Brian was talking, I was thinking to myself, one area that I've seen this congregation really embrace that whole engaging the systems is on the arena of child sex trafficking. Um, when you guys heard that call, each one of you, it was incredible to me um, how you took that in your own lens. Mm. We had teachers who were who took the information and said, you know, I'm going to create a presentation and I'm going to bring it to the Department of Education and I'm going to train other teachers on the signs of ch- domestic minor sex trafficking. Wow. We have judges that are in our congregation who are like, I sit on the bench and I'm going to educate all of my fellow judges on this issue. We have people sitting right here who went to their local uh, city uh, leaders and passed legislation and ordinances. Mm -hmm. I'm not really big on laws. I don't know how to read all of them, but you guys do and you did, and you sat down and looked through the ordinances and saw ways to be able to prevent that from happening in local cities. You went down to the Capitol and talked to your legislators about caring for mm. children and protecting them. Um, those children don't have voices for themselves, but you stood in that gap. For, but each one just in your own occupation said, I'm a nurse, I see them come in the ER, but I didn't know that what, what that was, but now I know. And I'm gonna educate. So standing in, you did that, but this is on an even larger scale than that so it's kind of looking at your whole city through your lens and how where god has placed you occupation yes your spiritual gifts but all the relationships you're in and on some of our handout it even says how can you leverage your network those yep. that you know on behalf of the things that are uh, broken places in your cities, and the systems that are oppressing people and causing injustices. That's and it. you guys did that before, and some of you are doing that for children in foster care, um, and those needing to be ad- adopted. Figuring out how to fix that system so that we can help those children find loving, caring homes. You guys have done that before, um, but it's it's bringing it even to a, a larger scale than that. That's
0: it. Mm-hmm. much of our privilege really right is relationships and connections Mm -hmm. that's what so much is lacking so often and we are blessed with that and so just what you all talk how do we leverage that for Mm -hmm. for the kingdom and for flourishing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um okay well we are going to open it up here in just a minute before we do i want to go back to really because i want us to be as um practical as we can but you know, if we're here tonight, and again, um, it has been more about what you could call transactional giving, right? We're giving things and mm-hmm. supplies, but how do we how do we move to that um, relationship piece? And mm-hmm. I know, Deborah, you'll hit on that a little bit, but but how um, you know, it, it, certainly time and capacity, but what else comes to mind?
2: Yeah, I think. Um One of the pieces of advice we give anyone who, especially if they're a person of means, a person from majority culture, that moves into a neighborhood like South Atlanta on purpose to be a good neighbor, to participate in the flourishing of that community, is to say, do not start or lead anything for minimum of a year. Uh, So at some level, I wanna release you from the pressure to fix poverty in 2018. Uh, that if you're finding that this, the relational stuff that we're talking about is not something that's consistent with anyone you've shared a meal with or had in your home sharing a meal with you, if you're thinking, man, I, I, I can't even name a time where, where that's ever happened. That's where you are. It's um, so a place where you need to start is by um, kind of displacing yourself uh, and that you don't have to go far, as we've talked about before. So I, I, the community I'm living in, have been there for uh, 13 years. Uh, And after like eight, I heard someone talking about a specific neighborhood. And I was like, this is not ringing any bells for me. They're like, yeah, it's just right over by this this store. And I'm like, no idea what you're talking about. So I go for a drive, driving through there. I'm like, how have I lived here for eight years? Didn't even know this little pocket was even here. So I started doing a little research. I'm like, oh, this is one of the first freed African-American settlements in DeKalb County, right here. Go figure, I didn't even know it was there, blind to it. And as much as that I was deliberate about trying to shape cross-cultural relationships and interdenominational partnerships and all this kind of stuff I'm trying to live into, completely blind, didn't have any clue that it was there, right? Uh, Because even though our communities are becoming more economically diverse, uh, there are some still pretty hard lines between who really gets listened to, who's valued, right? Especially if you're in an apartment, you don't really count because you're not a permanent home resident here. When the homeowners move just as rapidly as people in apartments uh, in today's age, right? Um, so, let replace yourself. I mean, come, come back into your community as if it's a foreign country. I mean, you draw yourself up your own fake passport if you need to, right? Come back to where you've always been. Move back into your neighborhood, right? Move back in to the, the, the community, city, whatever you call the, the pocket that's geographically bound that you live in. Uh, see it differently. Don't lead or be in charge or go to rescue. And find leaders you can follow uh, who are not like you, especially if they have or are experiencing poverty, um, learn to learn to be loved by them it's not about your ability to, to to love them in some uh ministry kind of capacity but can you be loved by them uh and do that let that work do its slow disruptive work in you and doors will begin to open to the other systems and complexities that that exist
1: excellent answers i i um want to just affirm everything sean is saying uh just to add a few more things one is um there are different callings in this space. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't personally feel called to frontline ministry with poor people uh, 24-7. I don't. I feel called to work on the issue of poverty 24-7. But the truth of the matter is, if, if I had Bill living in my house every day, I couldn't get anything else done. And, and I don't actually think my gifts in the kingdom lend themselves to that the best. And so some of you here are going, These guys are talking about relational ministry, relational ministry. I don't even like any people, much less poor people. I don't like anybody. Uh, There's a place for you too. It's called repentance. Um, But there there are different roles and different niches. So for example, uh, I I have a friend who is um, uh, extremely wealthy who um, uh, is a a guru in, well, he used to work for Google in in upper echelons of Google. And and, I would say that Frontline relational skills probably aren't his primary spiritual gift. But he's brilliant at strategy, brilliant. So what is his role? Well, he serves on uh, my board. And, and uh, he's great at giving advice. He's great at strategy. He writes big checks. Now, so, so I don't want you to hear that there's not any people to write big checks. There is, but you to write checks to ministries that are engaged in relational ministry. In other words, sometimes you can't be the frontline relational person, but pay for people to be the frontline relational person. All right, so, so there's a mindset in a, in a direction here we're trying to push you into, but there's different roles for different people in that direction. And I wanted to mention two resources, this is a commercial, I am apologize, but uh, two more resources that are coming out that you might be interested in to kind of uh, tweak your imagination to prick your imagination a little bit and to help you think through some possibilities. One is a book that's coming out in I think about two months called Practicing. We've changed the name. Practicing the King's Economy. Uh, There's a subtitle, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. And so this gets into what Sean was talking about earlier, what I was talking about. No matter what your vocation is, no matter what you're doing, how can you bend your business? How can you bend your company? How can you bend it towards uh, the poor? And so these are practical, there's a lot of theology in here, but there's also a lot of practical stories about how people just like you are trying to creatively live out the story of the kingdom of God and its economy uh, in the modern era. And then there's another resource um, that's more on the neighboring piece, which is an online course, Are You a Good Neighbor? And so you're asking how do you get started There's a course you can take. It's online uh, from the Chalmers Center. There's probably a brochure in the back of our table about it. Uh, uh, And it's kind of some of the questions that Sean was asking earlier are in that course. How far do you have to walk before somebody uh, doesn't know you or does know you? Those kinds of questions. It just starts to get you thinking about how to be a better neighbor. So there's a course there for you as well.
0: Great. Thank you, Brian. Let's, uh, Let's open it up to a few questions from you all
3: thank you for bringing us some your presentation and some statistics and so forth and what the ways that we are not as great as we think we are i have a question you have done a lot of research have you found a country a state even a community a county where helping the poor in the way that you envision it envision it, envisage it. Has been made manifest and has been successful. Are there places where this is being done so we can say it does work? Somebody has proved it, and therefore we can.
2: So one of the most exciting things, just uh, internationally, I've had the opportunity to be a part of uh, is work through Opportunity International in Nicaragua. So. One of FCS's former board members who for years and years tracked with Bob Loveden, who I'm going to tell you called him a grandfather of all this. <laughs> Got dinner with him tomorrow. I can't wait to share that, share that little tidbit with him. In uh, the face. In the face. Okay. Actually, great-grandpa Bob, I think is what they said about <laughs> you. Um, uh, so this uh, he, he, former uh, board member uh, kind of drug uh, Bob into getting involved in Nicaragua 12, 13 years ago uh, and asking these questions. What would it mean... If we partnered in such a way that we were driven by these development-based thinking, not relief or charity, but development. Really, what, what does it look like, and can we can we do that? In uh, 12 years of investing deeply uh, in uh, creating businesses that work for smallholder farmers, right? Uh, because uh, there's this massive gap between the farmer on the ground and the global ag industries and what they're doing. Uh, and they are always going to be left out. The whole parable or proverb about give a man a fish versus to teach a man to fish, they don't need to be taught how to fish, right? Especially not by me, right? They know how to do what they do, but the system does not include their well-being, doesn't care about their well-being, right? So rather than coming in and saying, oh, there's a shortage of food and sustenance for these poor farmers and their families, let's get the abundance of food that we throw away in America into their hands, no, let's ask why this supply chain doesn't work for the people who grow the crops. And can we as a nonprofit actually go in and restore the supply chain between the global ag suppliers and the smallholder farmer? What about the young people? And that they only go to school through eighth grade. And what about their education? Are we preparing them for actual careers? Nicaragua was a beautiful, beautiful country. Ag and tourism are the two growing industries in that country. Can we prepare young people to enter into that so that they can thrive? And so, won't tell the whole story, but it's an incredibly holistic approach to say, how do we restore the systems that allow people to flourish in a sustainable way? FCS's core DNA in South Atlanta is to not be there forever. We're in a few years, don't plan to be there any longer, right, and some people are like, that seems like you're, that doesn't seem very like loving as a nonprofit to not want to be there. No, because if a neighborhood's thriving and nonprofit, nonprofits are, 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 are an example that the fall is there, right? We're having to fill gaps that shouldn't exist, right? Uh, And so can we do the kind of work that restores the systems? Which is the only sometimes I think when people misapply the relational framework for understanding poverty is they miss the relationship to the economic systems and the legal systems that shape our communities. And so um, I think the work happening in South Atlanta here in our own city and the work happening in Nicaragua, two examples of like let's do a long-term deep-dive place-based development strategy and it changes people and it changes places.
1: Can I say something to that one, too? Yeah, absolutely. Am I still on? Uh, Similar to what Sean was just describing, uh, the Chalmers Center works in West Africa with some of the poorest churches on the planet. And we help those churches to help Uh, their communities to start what are called savings and credit associations. They're sort of like very small, very primitive credit unions, which poor people come together and they save and they lend their own money to each other to start small businesses, to pay for school fees for their kids and so on. The the Chalmers Center is a tiny little organization, highly dysfunctional because it's founded by a very dysfunctional Dutch guy. West Africa is one of the hardest places to work in the world. We've trained the poorest churches there in Togo and Benin and Burkina Faso to reach about 75,000 households. Now go over to Rwanda, 21 years ago, 22 years ago maybe, a genocide broke out in Rwanda. They think about a million people were slaughtered in the space of four months, most of them with machetes. One tribe decided to annihilate another tribe the dean of a college planned the execution of 500 of his own students. Husbands killed their own wives if they were from a different tribe. Time magazine ran a cover story that said there's no more demons in hell because they've all been unleashed in Rwanda. We able to work with the poorest churches there to bring people across uh, tribal conflict to reach 300,000 of the poorest people in the world. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the heart of the Bible Belt, a dozen PCA churches, A million Southern Baptist
3: churches.
1: (laughs) I've lived there 20 years. That's our headquarters. We've probably helped 10 people in the space of 20 years in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Now, why is that? Why is it that with these churches in my own city that have got resources? I was gonna say up the wazoo and I was gonna stop and I just said it. (laughs) We have untold financial resources. We've got theological resources. We've got the creeds, the confessions, the whole thing. We've probably helped 10 people in the city of Chattanooga in 20 years. It's because the churches in America are not in proximity to the poor. When we go to Togo, when we go to Rwanda, the churches are churches comprised of the poor. So, we say let's minister to the poor, it's the poor ministering to the poor. Mm-hmm. We go to Chattanooga, there's people living on top of Lookout Mountain who don't know any poor people in the city of Chattanooga, and that gap can't be covered. We've got to figure out how to be in proximity to the poor.
3: Mm-hmm. That's good.
0: Maybe one, one or two more. I
3: have a question for Sean, mm-hmm. and maybe you don't want to go into this.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, boy. <laughs> I
3: well,
2: appreciate you letting me reserve the <laughs> rights and <to> just pass. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, When you talked about bringing the people who knew about uh, food Mm -hmm. and a grocery store Mm -hmm. into your community and you said you sat around together, Mm -hmm. I'm very curious what was said and if anything came out of that and what were the issues that would have prevented that from happening.
2: The reason uh, a primary grocer industry would not come into our neighborhood, uh, one is a square footage issue. Uh, that we, now if they were allowed to maybe demolish a block or two and put one of the like super Kroger's, um, we call them crowbars. They now have a bar in Kroger now. So it's, it's, you know, so crowbars, if you've seen the new model, right, it's huge, right? That would be like a third of the neighborhood, right? But that would generate enough bottom line to make it feasible because you would get people from all over that kind of quadrant of the city coming but this kind of square footage in the retail space that we have available and wanted to use, you can't do it. Because what we learned uh, is that grocery stores don't make money off of food. Surprise, surprise, right? It's all the other things at grocery stores that make all the money. So all the milk is in the back because they actually lose money on milk. You've got to walk through to get the milk and then buy the stuff that makes some money before you reach the cash register. So we're so actually trying to do just groceries uh, without uh, lottery, cigarettes, or alcohol <laughs> in a you know 2,000 or so square foot. Retail space, uh, just not. Uh, and the biggest challenge has been um, suppliers, right? Unless we're going to order the big enough volume, they don't even want to listen to you. Unless they're suppliers for like convenience stores, but they're selling the stuff. We're not, we're not trying to stock our shelves with, we're not just trying to do a convenience store. Uh, so we actually had to partner with a guy out of Opelika, Alabama. We are in Atlanta, the hub of the Southeast. And we've got to partner with a guy in Opelika, Alabama, just to get access to the groceries to, to, kind of, to put them on our shelves, right? So we, and it, uh, so it'll be in May it'll be three years that the Carver Neighborhood Market's been open, uh, and so it's unbelievable uh, that it is uh, on pace uh, beyond projections of what we expected. Uh, we are still subsidizing it, but at any business that you start in the first three years, somebody's subsidizing it, right? Uh, but we're—it's uh, a really healthy and thriving business in, in that neighborhood that's doing more than just access to affordable, healthy groceries. Uh, it creates a sense of neighborhood place and identity and belonging. But yeah, it just uh, in a place like that, you're not going to generate... Uh, there's not enough expendable income to buy the flowers and the charcoal and the whatever else that you buy when you go to the grocery store.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay.
4: Um, I'm not sure if I can get my question across well, but I'll try. Um, so I appreciate how you guys really touched on how we... Um, can individually approach this in terms of transforming our whole mindset and allowing it to be something more organic in our relationships and our whole approach um, uh, to, you know, causing flourishing. Um, I I think one of the things that I'd like to hear a little bit more about is, um, I think you guys touched on it in um, um, Mr. Fiker, your book, and then also I think uh, Bob Lupton mentioned in his book about... um, how our focus is so much on relief in all of the efforts that we do mm-hmm. um, here in America. Oftentimes it's, it's all a, a relief approach when more of what needs to be occurring is a, is a development approach. And you guys kind of touched on that a little bit. But as a church, I'd be interested to hear how we can approach, what, what methods we can use to really approach um, our neighbors and approach um, reaching out to the poor with a development approach.
2: So just two distinctions even within relief versus development. Uh, When you're talking about development, uh, you can talk about developing individuals. So rather than just providing relief resources to an individual, you develop them. Faith and finances, uh, jobs for life, these are all curricula that are out there uh, that develop people, individuals. It increases their capacity uh, to find sustainable well-being in their lives. And that's huge, right? You also have to think about community development. That's what FCS does. We're trying to think about the systems and structures that surround those individuals. Because even if that individual gets a better job and manages their money well, if they're caught in unfair housing and they get displaced from there and no longer have access to that job because there's not transportation to get them there any longer, their life is crippled again, right? So as much as it's important, develop individuals, yes, do that work, uh, but you're also gonna find that there are environmental issues uh, that uh, have to be dealt with. That's actually FCS's history. FCS used to stand for Family Consulting Services, because the idea is, well, you can't help young people in, in tough neighborhoods until you help their families. So Bob gets his PhD in psychology from UGA to like, do this family consulting service. Because it's the, the, the family unit, that's where, that's where it all is about. But it didn't take long of really focusing there to say, you know what, no matter what we do for those individual youth or those families, they are caught in environments, neighborhoods, places uh, that are harmful, There's systems. No matter what progress that person or that family makes, the environment is subversive to that health. And so the organization shifts to be about focused community strategies. How do we develop neighborhoods and places where people can thrive there?
1: So again, I wanna affirm everything Sean is saying, I feel like I'm always giving a commercial, I don't mean to, but we have a book called Helping Without Without Hurting in Church Benevolence, Mm -hmm. which I I think is often a good place to start because Mm -hmm. almost every church in America has people coming in asking for help with their electric bills Mm -hmm. or with gas money or something like that. And so it's often the first point of contact that a church like this would have with low-income people And so a good place to start is with that, because it's a point of contact. And so there are things that you can do to reshape your approach to benevolence, to move it away from lots of writings of checks, kind of relief work, into more developmental approaches. And as we kind of walk through that in our book, one of the most powerful things that you can do is change the dynamic in that moment from, uh, will you write us a check to a dynamic that says uh, what are your, in which the church is saying to that low income person, uh, what are your dreams? What are your goals for your life? What gifts and abilities do you have? What resources do you have that you can use to achieve those goals and those dreams? Uh, How can we come alongside of you and walk with you as you pursue those goals and those dreams? And you kind of help them develop an action plan uh, for their future. And so it's, t- it's changed the dynamic from we're here to write you a check to you're in charge of your own development. And we are here to walk with you through that. And then a really powerful thing you could do, and this church could do this. I've seen churches very similar to this do this, is use something called a circle of support. Uh, there's a wonderful church in Dayton, Ohio called Fairhaven. Uh, it's a Christian Missionary Alliance church. If you go to their website, look at something called Kettering Circles they are talking about there. And essentially, uh, the low-income person agrees to have a team of usually about four or five people come around them as allies. And so it's a team of people who are going to walk with them, helping them to uh, use their own gifts and uh, bringing in resources as appropriate to walk with them, it, it involves relation, uh, kind of an empowering relational approach. And what will typically happen in that scenario is that as that circle of support is walking with that low-income person, they will begin to understand what the broken systems are in that person's life. And so that team, in addition to addressing the brokenness in that person's individual personhood, can start to address the brokenness in the systems around them. And so the same team can kind of push out against the systems as well as do the nurturing and encouraging thing. Does this make any sense? Mm-hmm. This church can do this. You can do this. And, and, you know, folks, the people who are struggling with material poverty have typically fairly significant problems. And so by using a team based approach, you can kind of share the joy and the burden together with others because it, it's exhausting quite frankly and so it's a way of kind of moving forward together uh there's a lot in our book about all of that
0: great last last question
3: yeah actually it's more of a comment i'm one of those busy moms that doesn't have time and in my d group we've been learning so much about um you know the love of god the trinity and at the end of those lessons there's the mission i Used to skip over, (laughs) but now I'm really trying to pay attention, and I feel like when we are working on our own hearts and we're asking God, where where should I be? What should I do? When we live with open hands and and an intention of giving, that God. Well use us wherever we 're at, you know the neighbor down the street's losing her husband, the guy around the corner you know is lonely you know the neighbor next door is ninety you know so I you know really have to open your eyes the way God would want you to wherever you live, but you know allow Christ to use you. And I think that that um, not it's helped me in my busy life to allow Christ to make me outward you know thinking outward instead of What are my, you know, what do I need? I want to show my kids and my neighbors what Christ can do in them.
5: That's it. I think that was a perfect segue for my commercial. Yes. Um, There's (laughs) an event coming up just for women on March 17th, and it's going to talk about, like you led with I'm a busy mom, but just in all of the seasons Mm -hmm. of our lives as women, how we can leverage the good gifts and talents and passions as women that we have, and how we can... um, really leverage our influence and our impact uh, for God's kingdom. So I hope you'll join us on March 17th. It's going to be a brunch.
0: (laughs) That's good. Well, Deborah, why don't you continue and share, uh, because we will want a lot of people may or may not know what we are doing as a church and really how people can specifically plug in
5: yes and i would i would just say to all of you yes to all of this and just know that as someone who this is this is my job here at perimeter church sitting and being able to learn from these two gentlemen has been a privilege um but as you heard chip say in the very beginning we went out and heard from brian six years ago six years ago is not a long time Um, but it was coming back and then having conversations with all those nonprofits that you hear us talk about and handing them the book When Helping Hurts and handing them the book Toxic Charity and having some really hard conversations about some of the ways that together we were hurting. Um, And it's not been easy. Um, And so we love our nonprofits and we serve alongside of them with the purpose of being able to enter into spaces where we're not the authority they're serving in communities that is, they're not in Johns Creek. Mm-hmm. They are the authority and we are not. Mm-hmm. But we come underneath that to build those relationships. But what we've been asking as churches is can we do that in a way that helps and not hurts? Mm-hmm. Um, so even though some of the offerings that we have here, it looks like it's hurting, we don't make those things up. Mm-hmm. Like right now you see a basic knee drive. It isn't because... Uh, Deborah and Jackie and Katie and Sydney decided it sounded like a great idea to do a basic knee drive. And we decided what would go in the bags because we thought we knew it all. But we do talk to the nonprofits who are on the front lines every day, who are listening to the people that come in, because thats they're extending that hand of compassion and love and saying, come into a relationship with us. Mm. I hear your need, and I'm not going to turn you away. I'm going to meet that need, mm-hmm. but I'm inviting you into a relationship. But then what we need all of you to do is then help them enter they're just a, they're small staffs, most most of them, mm-hmm. and they need loving, compassionate, intelligent people to come alongside and help. They need people who know how to write budgets mm-hmm. to to form that circle of care around the clients that come, that may not think they have any opportunities, that feel hopeless, they feel oppressed by the systems they keep rubbing up against, they can't see any other opportunity out, but with people like you offering the hope of Jesus Christ and, and practical help and know-how and network, they, that door is then opened. So even though we start, we gave you this little handout, you can see in all the areas where we serve at Perimeter, we start on this point of crisis, but we never, ever stay on that point of crisis. We are trying very hard to move all the way along to self-sufficiency. But as you see, mentoring, discipling, relationships, friendships is across that whole continuum. Our nonprofits can't do it without people entering into relationships, a single mom who feels very trapped by, I do want to get a job, but I can't afford affordable childcare, And my car that is used keeps breaking down, and I can't afford the insurance on it, nor the gas. Yep. But I'm caught in the cycle, and I, all I need is somebody to help me figure out how this really works. But instead, what we often do is stay on that, on that one side where we want to give this stuff. We give that as an opportunity because, yes, that single mom does need diapers for her kids. She can't put them in affordable child care if the child doesn't come with diapers and wipes. I mean, it's true. So we need those things, but we need so much more than that. Um, We have a handout in the back. Like Brian was saying, we need people with specific talents to sit on boards for nonprofits, that have the ability to strategize and see gaps along the continuum, that can say, we're wrestling in this city with affordable housing. Okay, who do I know that I can call and who is in real estate who can sit on that board and really rethink, retool? Our, our nonprofits, I mean, they're awesome, but they're in the trenches and they're, they're, their little heads are barely above the water. <laughs> but they need thinkers above that looking out at the landscape of the city and saying, well, I know, I know a guy. I know a gal. I'm going to give her a call and let's sit down and have coffee and talk about what, what this might look like. Um, so there's a lot of different places on that continuum. But as we say on this sheet, first and foremost, pray. Mm-hmm. God has placed you somewhere for a reason. He's put you in the occupation that you're in for a reason. He's put the people around you in your network, in your life for a reason. And to what end would he like to use you? Mm-hmm. What, what has he given you that only you can do? I think that was the Aha for me when I listened to Randy preach one morning on spiritual gifts for I don't know how many times I've heard that, but I listened and I heard that my gift of organization is a gift, a spiritual gift, but I can give it in a place that could really make a difference and and I want to be able to be an advocate for all children to reach their God-given potential. My gift is organization and planning. I love emails. I love them. I love Outlook, ticklers, to remind other people to do stuff. So I'm like, okay.
1: Prayers of healing for you right now. <laughs> so if I
5: have that, how can I leverage that to be an advocate for children so that they can have, all children can have access to education and opportunities? That's it. How can I do that? And so it's just thinking about who you are as God designed you, where he's placed you, the people around you, and then thinking bigger past the basic need bags, although we need them, but trying to figure out what, what is my next step after that.
0: Yep.
5: Um, and so we have some resources at the back That's table. <laughs> okay, I'm going to open this up. I am actually going to be trained by um, Sean. He's, the Lupton Center is having an open house. If you would like to come with and check that out with us, we have at our community outreach table my card or Jackie's card. Let me know if you'd like to come down and investigate that. Take that next step of what does that look like? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Uh, We have the Seeking Shalom curriculum, again, which I got to go through. Sean is kind of the facilitator on an online curriculum. So if you want to, I did it... it's online, and I would say there's power in that. I, wrest- I was angry as I listened to those things in the privacy of my car and my home. I was mad. I was confused. It's so complex. I was listening to these things, and I just, I just, oh, it just rattled me. So if that's something you want to do also, you can go online to the Greater Love series and see that. And then again, Brian mentioned the resources. We have those books in the bookstore. When Helping Hurts was my first step onto that journey. And what he shared at his seminar that day that changed my mind was, it is that relational piece. People are so lonely. Mm. As, mm. A, as a church, that's why we're asking you to love your neighbor. You know, Chip, is over. he oversees Unite, and we've gotten the privilege to hear from mayors across the state. Mm. And each one, in their own words, kind of said, uh, well, Chip always asks at the end, so, Mayor, what would you like to see your churches help you with, with the issues in your city? And they all in no certain terms say, well, doesn't your Bible teach you to love your neighbor? (laughs) If you would do that and not send me the letter about your neighbor's lawn being too long, or the fence post being broken down, or they're not pulling (laughs) up their trash can, or it looks like they're doing maintenance on more than one vehicle in their driveway... How about if you love your neighbor? Mm -hmm. Because that lady you just wrote me about, her husband just passed away. Mm. And that that car that he's working on, it's because they just can't keep one running, and he just lost his job again. Mm -hmm. So as a congregation, we do want you to just start right where you're at, loving and building those relationships and working your way out, and God will just lead you as you pray and try to discern his calling, his will for your life. So... There's resources at our table, and then the gentlemen have resources at their table, and the bookstore is open if you'd like to purchase any other resources.
0: And hopefully even the city ministry teams, yeah. as that begins to come on, yes. and really helping our people understand, you know, if you're in Duluth, what is really happening in Duluth, right? What are the neighborhoods? What are the schools? What are the nonprofits? Yeah. Um, and, able to and what other perimeter
5: members live near you? Isn't that like mm. a mystery too? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Connect the dots some more. Um, excellent. Excellent. Well, could we give a huge thanks mm. to Thank Sean, you. Brian, and Deborah? Tremendous wisdom. Thank you. Thank you, first of all. For what you're both doing in your uh, world, so to speak, in South Atlanta and FCS, and Brian too, with your with your friend uh, Bill, (laughs) Bill, right? (laughs) And uh, and obviously the giftings that God's used you to develop amazing books and curriculum, and you're a blessing to us. Um, Sean, do you want? Was there something you wanted to show? uh, Yeah, so if
2: you want to try out the Seeking Shalom uh, curriculum, which you get to hear from this guy and the author of When Helping Hurts, who let him put his name on it. I think that's that's the story he told (laughs) me. I'm not sure. They're both on that that series as well. We interviewed about 30 different people from urban ministry professionals, people who grew up experiencing poverty, to authors and scholars, just a whole realm of people. Deborah can connect you with the online series. If you want to have a dvd if you like the physical thing in your hand and a workbook to write in we have some of those on the table in the back Uh, or if you just want to come visit us at open house it's coming up on a monday and tuesday in march deborah has already got a group of people coming down we'd love to see you and my colleague donnell who's in the back back there he is our lead trainer in community development he is a city planner community development guru which we are thrilled to have him on the team so he'll be a key voice key lead in that that open house experience to talk about what development uh, can look like so yeah we would love to support your steps of this journey. This has been highly disruptive in my life for the last 15 years, uh, and I, I know what it's like to just com- feel completely uh, just shattered by these things, so we would love to continue walking with you on this journey.
0: Awesome. Um, I do want to mention, too, before we wrap, that um, you know, we have a, a new series coming up starting next week as part of the Greater Love series, and this one will be um, diving a bit deeper into loving those of every race, but we have our next panel will be on Sunday night, March fourth. So that'll be coming up with some of our very own as well as a few others. Um, so thank you again for coming tonight. Please feel free to stick around. I don't know if these guys can hang out for a little bit, but there's tables back there. Still some refreshments left. Still food. That's good. Yeah. Still some food left. <laughs> um, how about Deborah? Would you close our time in prayer? Mm. Thanks.
5: God, we just give you thanks for today and just this time to be thinking about the things that matter to you most. God, I pray that as we go from here, you would just open up our hearts and our hands um, to all that you have for us out in the places where we live and where we work and where we play. God, I pray that you would help us to not be distracted by this world, by the busyness, by what culture would tell us is success but that we would really be intentional with our decisions and, our, and the stewardship of our lives um, as we go about our, our daily lives. God, I thank you for these friends, Brian and Sean, and the ability for them to come and share and teach us the things that um, really make a difference. God, the things from you that you would like to see us spend our lives doing. God, I pray that you would go with us from here, encourage us, because it's gonna be tough, Um, empower us through your holy spirit to be brave and courageous help us to love with that relentless love that you pursued us with god we thank you for this time and we pray that it wouldn't just be another thing to check off the box but that it would result in action and prayer and we pray this all in the matchless name of jesus amen
0: amen thank you very much